Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our archives again and was recorded in September of 2014 between our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Fred Foldvery. Dr. Foldvery received his bachelor's from UC Berkeley and his master's and PhD in economics from George Mason University. He taught at Virginia Tech, Santa Clara University, and San Jose State. Mr. Foldvery was a research fellow at the Independent Institute, a libertarian think tank, and is the author of several books on economics. We were lucky enough to talk with Dr. Foldvery about how Georgia's economics helped him predict the 2008 financial crisis. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Fred, welcome to Smart Talk. Uh, I'm going to open up with uh, a famous prediction of yours. Uh, I, I think the audience should know that uh, you made a prescient call in 2008 about the collapse of finance in, in America. And I'd like you to discuss with the audience how you were able to do that, because that's a perfect segue into our discussion about Henry George and, and the related economics. But you're one of the few economists who theoretically and actually predicted that, that drop. How did you do it? I wrote an article on the business cycle. In, uh, it was published in 1997 in the, uh, uh, the American Journal of Economics and Sociology. And uh, what I did was I combined the Austrian school theory of the business cycle with the Henry George theory. The Austrian school theory focuses on money, interest rates, and capital goods. And Henry George focused on land and land speculation. And each of these was incomplete, but together they form a good uh, synthesis. So that explains the business cycle. Now, as to the timing, uh, there was a real estate economist whose name was Homer Hoyt. And he, he wrote a book, 100 Years of Land Value in Chicago, in which he traced the ups and downs of real estate for 100 years up to his time. And there was a remarkable regularity with an average period of 18 years. So I carried that forward to... Uh, up to then 1997, so the last real estate recession before that was 1990. And uh, if you count 18 years after 1990, we get exactly to 2008. Now, the, the explanation of the business cycle fit the history very well, not just the timing, but why it happens. And- All right, good question. Uh, why, why, 18, why 18 years? Uh, you know, mainstream economists would say, that's accidental, yet the regularity is, is there to see. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it's a long cycle. It, it's a multi-year cycle because it, it takes several years to recover from the recession, as our economy has been doing now. It takes a few years for then real estate to come back, vacancies shrink, rents start to come up. Then you have uh, real estate construction. And then as uh, rents and land values go up, you have uh, land speculation jumping in. And so uh, real estate development is a process that takes many years. So uh, it doesn't have to be exactly 18 years. In fact, uh, it was interrupted by World War II. 
so there was no uh, real estate boom until you know the 1960s, early 70s, and also in 19s during the 1970s after the recession of 73, there was high inflation, which created a uh, price asset boom for all kinds of tangible goods, including real estate, culminating in the recession of 1980. So wars, inflation, and so on can alter the cycle. But it was quite accurately, regularly at 18 years in the 1800s. And uh, so it uh, doesn't have to be exactly 18 years, but that's just been the average. But let me ask you this then, since you combine both real and financial, uh, and, and that's an interesting proposition. In your experience, uh, you know, the Georges would be more real. Which is more important, in your opinion, in creating that cycle? And it, would you have a weighting? Would it be finance, or would it be the real uh, economy that would be the ultimate driver, or you can't disentangle? Well, the basic fundamental cause to the boom and bust cycle is massive subsidies to real estate. The biggest subsidy, well, there's tax breaks right. uh, for real estate that other assets don't have. But the biggest, so that's a fiscal subsidy, but the biggest subsidy of all is the implicit subsidy of government spending. When government provides infrastructure, security, and so on, all of that raises the value of land. And, and, and because most of that spending is, comes from taxes on labor and business profits and goods, um, it's a, <clears throat> the landowners receive rent, which they didn't do anything for. So that's a huge subsidy to real estate. Real estate then captures, or land values capture the gains from economic expansion. So, so the, the major cause is subsidies to real estate. The most important subsidy is the implicit one of public goods that, are, that generate higher rent and land value. But there's also the monetary subsidy. Almost every uh, real estate boom has been financed by cheap credit, artificially cheap credit, such as the Federal Reserve expanding the money supply, pushing interest rates low in order to stimulate the economy after a recession, as in fact the Fed has been doing in the past few years. Well, that leads me to uh, your advocacy of free banking. Now, if we had a free banking system yes. as opposed to the Federal Reserve, what good things would come from that in your opinion? The interest rate would be set by the market instead of by the Federal Reserve policy. The interest rate has an important job to do in the economy. It balances borrowing and saving. It balances savings and investment. It allocates spending between consumption and investment. So if you artificially alter the interest rate, it's not allowed to do its job of balancing things. And then you get things like recessions and inflation. So with free market banking, there's no central bank like the Federal Reserve. The, both the money supply and the interest rate are set by the market according to supply and demand. And therefore, these variables are allowed to do their economic job. It's like price controls. So you do believe that that would balance investment and saving. Now, today, given a Keynesian Federal Reserve combination, of course, the Keynesians would argue that interest rate isn't driving investment or income. It's, uh, it's income and it's demand management and, and pumping up the economy. And of course, the Fed can do that because it can print money. It's a reserve currency. And you, uh, you argue that with free banking and eliminating that Fed privilege, 
uh, interest rates would then truly become the arbiter of Yes, you wouldn't have the artificially cheap credit that fuels the boom and bust. Why wouldn't the government consider oh, well, the government, free banking? Well, the government wants to be able to in control the money supply. They want to be able, that's one of their controls is a monetary policy. So with free banking, there'd be, uh, the monetary policy would be just to let the market work. And, uh, but also I think uh, conventional economics focuses on the status quo. If you take a course in money and banking, it assumes the existence of the Federal Reserve or some other central bank. That's true. And it and shows how that works. Free banking isn't even taught, uh, except by a few economists. That's true. Well, they would argue that free banking was observed in the 1800s and, and it was uh, accompanied by uh, failed banks, uh, uh, wildcat banks, uh, booms and busts also. What would your argument be against uh, that? Was not, against it, that? That was not, I mean, historians call it the era of free banking, but it was not genuine free market banking. There were, for example, state restrictions on branches. So a, a, an established bank in New York or Boston or Philadelphia was not allowed to establish branches in the new pioneer states such as Illinois, Ohio, Indiana. So therefore, uh, there were new banks uh, set up there, but they were not well capitalized. And so they're called wildcat banks. Yeah. And also these banks in the pioneer states, they were forced to hold state state bonds. So, uh, so there was a lot of intervention by the state governments. Uh, if the banks in the East were allowed to establish branches in the West, in the new states, and they weren't forced to hold state bonds, then they would have had a stability and they would have been able to convert paper money into gold and silver, and you wouldn't have had these these problems. Uh, a lot of the there was cheap credit because the banks issued currency backed by the state bonds, and that led to the speculation at that time, and that led to the panic of 1837 and sub subsequent booms and busts. Okay, I mean that's a fair uh, description of why free banking could overcome the deficiency you taught you talked about. But the Keynesians would argue in a, in a modern economy where you have tremendous buildup of technology, you have monopoly corporations, that uh, there's going to be a certain amount of unemployment and there's going to be a certain amount of people who can't compete. And therefore, a balanced economy of a free market type really can't come into being simply because you'd have technological unemployment, if nothing else. And they would argue that they need demand management and welfare uh, capabilities to, to overcome those pockets of uh, unemployment that will be generated by a modern, highly technical society. Your, your comments on that? Well, the, the only unemployment in a truly free market would be the frictional unemployment of people between jobs or graduates looking for their first job, uh, people who would soon find work. If you look at un unemployment today, uh, you have... Uh, government interventions that are creating unemployment. You've got minimum wages that make uh, workers more expensive. On top of that, you then have several taxes that the employers have to pay. And nowadays they, have, they might have to provide medical insurance. So uh, the minimum wage is only the beginning of labor costs. Uh, and uh, so um, these higher costs, and also there's uh, restrictions on self-employment. Henry George emphasized that a 
an alternative to being employed by a firm is to become self-employed. Now, a lot of people don't want to be self-employed, but enough will, and then they can hire others. So, so restrictions on enterprise and self-employment, zoning and all kinds of regulations and, and other restrictions, permits, licenses. Uh, so all of these things stifle employment. In a pure free market, there really be no reason for unemployment other than about 1% of the labor force that's in between jobs. But if I were running the um, 50 top corporations in America today, and I decided that, uh, well, I've noticed that communism has fallen in 1990, and I have high-wage Americans, I decide simply to go to China, now that I can, and offshore uh, a lot of high-wage Americans and trade for low-wage Chinese and the assembly and the low-level manufacturing ends, eliminating quickly a, a great segment of uh, American workers. How would you overcome that? With well, a uh, both trade, yeah, both trade and the outsourcing you mentioned have the same effect as better technology. Now, if you look at the 1800s, the beginning of the 1800s, most Americans were farmers. They were employed in farmer farming. Today, only two percent of American workers are farmers. So, did that result in massive unemployment? All these millions of farmers looking for jobs? No. Uh, when you have better technology, production shifts. It gets the industry gets restructured into other jobs. So we had the rise of manufacturing, and then the rise of service jobs, and so on. When the uh, cars replaced horses, you, you you lost jobs raising horses, but you gained jobs making and servicing cars. Since computers have created millions of jobs designing websites, software, and so on. So uh, same thing with trade. Trade does not create unemployment. Uh, what trade does is allow each economy to concentrate on its comparative advantage, what it's best at. For example, if you have a lawyer and a secretary, even if the lawyer can type faster than the secretary, you will hire the secretary because the hours he would spend typing would be law, uh, hours he couldn't get paid doing legal work. Right? Comparative and, advantage, and so, yes. What about so, absolute so, advantage? So trade is, trade is based on comparative advantage, having a lower opportunity cost or you know what you have to give up in order to do something, not the absolute advantage. And uh, so trade does not create unemployment. And, uh, and that includes out trading of labor, such as outsourcing. Well, if you're, if you're sending your capital overseas, you know, Ricardian theory would say uh, free trade, uh, if you send your capital overseas, is not really free trade in the classic sense, and that it, it kind of invalidates the, the conclusions on, on free trade. If I send my capital and go for new labor and then import it back in, there's going to be a long transition period uh, before I can make that up. And, and, and the argument also would be manufacturing, it's one thing to come off the farm and go into manufacturing, but the farm stayed here. Uh, if manufacturing stayed here, even though it took fewer and fewer people to run them, then presumably more manufacturing companies with less labor component would exist. But if you get rid of your manufacturing and your, and your labor and your capital, it may not work as stated. Your comments? Well, uh, first of all, manufacturing still takes place in the United States. We have new technologies such as three-dimensional printing which is uh, creating uh, new opportunities for manufacture. And 
<clears throat> a large part of the uh, capital flight is due to the artificial tax structure and uh, trading structures that have been set up with the World Trade Organization and other uh, organizations. For example, um, United States has a disadvantage because European countries with the value added tax can export goods tax free. They subtract the tax from their exports. Whereas with our income tax, that's included in the price of exports. That makes American exports artificially more expensive just because of the uh, tax treatment. Uh, now, <clears throat> when Henry George pointed out that capital goods are created by labor, right? And so as long as we have the labor here and there's a desire for goods, there'll be some equilibrium where uh, those who wanna work will find opportunities and trade with others. Uh, capital goes where it's best treated. If we treat it better here by not taxing it, that is, you know, taxing land instead of financial capital or capital goods, there will be plenty of capital that'll stay here. The reason wages are higher in the United States than in India or China is because of the greater productivity of labor. In our market, the wage tends to equal the, you know, what, what workers contribute to output. And if they're more productive, the higher cost of labor is offset by the higher productivity. So uh, the movements of capital is not really a problem if you have a, a free market. Okay, and assuming that the land rents and monopoly rents were collected. Uh, that's a premise right. of Henry George. Why hasn't that yeah. happened in this country? The obvious tax, the obvious tax that isn't a deadweight tax is a tax on land resources and other monopolies that, uh, that go along with it. That being the case, why hasn't that gained traction since the days of Henry George. Your opinion. Yeah, uh, there's two reasons for it. One is, of course, as George pointed out, there are special interests that will oppose it. In fact, uh, there's been several introductions of land value tax in state legislatures, and uh, they've been, including California, they've been opposed by, of course, the landowners. Uh, they have a lot of political clout. They, if you look at the spending on candidates, the real estate interests and their financial allies are among the top contributors to political campaigns. So there's the political opposition. But second, but then of course, why wouldn't the public, the public as a whole would benefit from this tax shift? Uh, there's a lot of economic ignorance, which is even propagated by, you know, the science of economics. Uh, yes because uh, graduate students don't learn about Henry George, they don't learn about land value taxation. They may, in passing, uh, get a little bit of it in history of economic thought or in public finance courses. They'll indicate that a tax on an inelastic supply like land has no dead weight loss, but then they, go, they don't go to the logical conclusion of, well, let's do that. Stiglitz, is, Stiglitz so, so, has come out with that recently to say that. Joseph and, Stiglitz and, and, has and, and, reiterated Stiglitz, that. Yeah, Stiglitz has, has, uh, is one of the few economists who have, in fact, he uh, promoted um, what's called the Henry George theory, which in principle says that there's enough land rent to finance the public goods that we want government to provide. Uh, and of course, Mason Gaffney, uh, professor, uh, has uh, written on the corruption of economics that, that the stifling of rent in economic theory was a deliberate device by the landed interests. Okay, the, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the amount of that tax. Uh, I think if, if I recall, both state,
federal and local taxes in America, uh, I think in a recent year, came to around $2.3 trillion, something like 23% of the GNP. Uh, various Georgists around the world have calculated the amount of land tax value uh, available if such a tax was enabled. And I think Australia uh, is a country that has done the most relevant and recent work on that. Uh, uh, Mr. Dwyer, could you comment on that? I think you're familiar with his, his work. Yes, I'm uh, familiar with the Australian uh, study and, and including a graph that showed the increase in rent uh, over the past 100 years. So uh, that uh, analysis shows that uh, the land rent would be about a third of national income. And uh, since the United States has uh, 10 times the density of Australia, you would think it would be at least as much uh, over here. So uh, government spends about, uh, you know, a third of national income for public goods. A lot of what government spends is for transfer payments, Social Security, Medicare, and so on. Now, there, if land rent were the only source of revenue, it might not, it would cover public goods, it might not cover all the transfer payments. But if people's wages were not taxed and the goods they buy are not taxed, they could, they would have a much higher uh, standard of living and then they could afford to finance their own retirement so you could phase out Social Security and other transfer payments and you wouldn't need as much welfare. Yeah, I think that's so, uh, so the, pretty clear. It's a pretty clear calculation and it's been, it's been done a number of times and in other places and it converges to one third of the GNP is rent driven. Would you agree that that's... Yeah. And, and if you actually look at the payments of rent in today's economy, it does not count the suppressed rent. That is rent that you don't see that would be there if not for other taxes. If you eliminate the deadweight loss taxes, then the economy would be more productive. The, what economists call the producer surplus, uh, the, the price minus the cost of production, <clears throat> they call it a producer surplus, but it's really land rent, and, but, but it's not counted as such. It, the land rent that we see is lower because businesses bid less for land if they don't get as much profit and output. So the rent would be so much higher, the explicit rent that we see would be much higher if you eliminated these other taxes. Would you uh, count in, and estimate the balance of monopoly in this uh, country, for example, certain corporations with patents and so forth, what percentage of that would, would be monopoly relative to the size of the land monopoly? If, if land is, and resources are about a third of the economy, would you say that monopoly elsewhere would add another 5 or 10% to, to that, or it's not calculable? Yeah. Well, there was actually an economist who uh, measured this, and his name was Harberger. And uh, he estimated that uh, monopoly uh, profits only uh, amount to about 3% of the economy in contrast to the 33% of land rents. So, and most of that monopoly is a natural monopoly, such as water or electricity or natural gas, where it, it wouldn't be economical for somebody else to compete with the existing structure. And natural monopolies that tend to be municipal owned, you have the water supply, natural gas, and so on, that are either regulated or owned by, you know, government agencies. So the remaining monopolies are really not a major cause of uh, debt weight loss. In, in your opinion, uh, patents in uh, large corporations, which are numerous and many, uh, don't amount to any significant uh, premium over a competitive price. 
Well, I think patents in principle uh, are helpful to the economy, but I, that doesn't necessarily mean that the current patent system is good. There's, there are a lot of flaws with the current patent system. Uh, for example, I think if two companies have, have independently developed a new invention, they should both have rights to that invention, even if one came to the patent office a few days before the other. So I think there's uh, reforms that could be made uh, for patents, uh, <clears throat> but uh, a proper patent system, which, and the patent's only good for about 20 years anyway. True, true. So a proper patent system, I don't think, I think uh, it, it has some problems, but I don't think it's a major economic problem. Even patenting forms of life, like genomes and so forth, genes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think forms of life should be patentable because if they're found in nature and some of these have been used by some native uh, primal cultures in their medicines and so on, and then some company comes and takes that compound and patents it. So if it's been in use either in nature or by some local uh, people, yeah, those should not be subject to a patent. Now, going back to the... And, and there's also abuses. Go ahead. Uh, for example, genetically right. modified uh, plants, if if the seeds happen to be drifting over to a neighbor neighbor farmer who does not use those plants, the company that has a patent should not be able to go after that innocent farmer who didn't even want that. Going back to the uh, rent surplus, the question, of course, is who who collects it? Now, rent uh, from from property including land is co collected in the local at the local level in most municipalities in America but if we talked about a total overall land tax let's say collected at the federal level and then passed on through the state and local level wouldn't that give it an immense amount of money and perhaps an immense amount of power to a group of bureaucrats i mean joseph stalin collected all the rents all the rents in the Soviet Union. And uh, there was really no check and balance on him. That's what would correct. your argument be, uh, argument be of a massive influx of rent going to a central station that had to parcel it out? Why wouldn't a lot of smart guys like the Goldman Sachs guys or whatever figure out this is a nice uh, pile of money to be gotten and to help distribute? Your comments on the centralization of the surplus. Yeah, that's precisely why I believe that the county level in the United States and similar to other countries, the currently the property taxes is set and collected at the county level. Uh, so I think that that is the appropriate level to uh, assess land and uh, collect the land rent. Uh, then some of the land rent would be passed from the county down to the cities and local communities, and some would be sent up to the state, and then the state would send uh, a share to the federal government. Now, the federal government might set what portion it gets and so on, but the, the assessment and collection would be local. Now, of course, there'd be an incentive for the county to set the property tax low if most of it is passed on to higher levels of government. So therefore, the, the Board of Assessors should, should have representatives from the federal, state, and local governments so that uh, you don't have a bias either for too much or too little uh, assessment. And also, of course, property owners can appeal their assessments if they feel that it's unfair relative to their neighbors. Why would we just collect a, uh, the land rent 
and give it out as a citizen's dividend. Just dish it out pro rata and then let the governments dig it back out from the individuals. This way they got it, they know they have it, and they'd be, you know, the assessments would be probably higher and uh, the government would have a tougher time getting it back in, a, in an arbitrary fashion. Your comments on that? Well, I'm in, I'm in favor of a residence dividend because the, as you say, the dividend competes with government spending and that would be a powerful political pressure to avoid waste, wasteful spending because that's money that they wouldn't get uh, themselves. Uh, so I imagine uh, the ideal in my vision is that uh, people would get the dividend and but join in communities like a residential association, condominium, land trust or whatever, communities that would provide local public goods. Uh, and uh, it's like a, in a condominium, uh, you, you join it and you promise to pay certain assessments every month uh, for the local services. So I think, yeah, I, I'm all in favor of a citizen's dividend or residence dividend. And every, le every level of government would have to dig it back out, uh, you know, in a, in a way that's justifiable. That's right. And it, it would certainly, and then, of course, your income and your salaries and your investments would be yours without tax. So it would be. Yes. And explain why a tax on land, for example, is better than a tax on income and a tax on capital. I think there's a lot of confusion on that. I mean, laymen would say, what's the difference? Why don't you explain to them what the difference is? Well, the difference is that land has a fixed cost, or that is, spatial land has a, a fixed amount. There's a fixed amount of land. You can't have a land factory to produce more acres. You can't import land. So there's a fixed supply of land. So that means if you tax land, right, it doesn't run away as capital might. It doesn't hide from the tax collector into an underground economy. It's inherently public, right? So land does not hide, shrink, or flee. If you tax labor or capital goods, it shrinks, right? You get less labor because labor is more expensive. If you tax capital goods, capital goods become more expensive. Machines, inventory, and so on become more expensive, so you get less of it. And this reduction in quantity creates what economists call a deadweight loss or excess burden of taxes. But if you tax land, you don't get any less land. It doesn't hide. Right, and that doesn't run away, right? So therefore, taxing land value has uh, no, no bad effects. It, it doesn't reduce the amount of land. And in fact, it has, it, economists have, uh, like uh, Professor Tiedemann, have shown that uh, a land tax is even better than neutral. In other words, it's actually beneficial for the economy because it uh, eliminates uh, land speculation. It, it puts land to its best productive use because if you don't use it productively, you still get taxed the same amount because it's, the, it's based on the highest and best use of land as a lot of property taxes are already and therefore it, it promotes an efficient use of land. What if uh, we had a land tax base in the United States and we were competing with other economies that did not have that? How do you think we would fare competitively? Other people didn't tax... We would have a yeah, uh, an economy with a land value tax and no other taxes would have a tremendous uh, comparative advantage because our exports would be cheaper. And uh, so uh, 
and so you'd have and and people would be able to keep the profits of enterprise. So this United States would thrive. We would have the the strongest economy in the world relative to everybody else. Okay, there are some examples in a partial way of that working. I think Taiwan would have been a country uh, that, in effect, That's practiced right. that at least up to a point. Do you want to comment on Taiwan? Yeah, Taiwan uh, became um, separate from uh, mainland China in 1950 after uh, the nationalists lost the Civil War. And uh, so uh, going back to the thought of Sun Yat-sen, who in turn had read Henry George, Sun Yat-sen, the revolutionary Chinese leader, had advocated that land value taxation for all of China, but he died in the 1920s before he could implement it. So, but the idea remained. So when uh, Chiang Kai-shek brought the nationalists into Taiwan, they did a land reform, they paid off the landlords with bonds, and they put in a high land value tax. And Taiwan, which doesn't have much in the way of material natural resources, they don't have oil or minerals and so on, yet because of their tax policy, they rapidly developed into a modern economy. The same thing went on in Japan in the 1800s after the uh, revolution there uh, that restored the emperor. Uh, yes. Uh, the Meiji Revolution, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Meiji Restoration. They put in a land tax and Japan grew into a modern economy because they didn't want to become a colony like the other Asian uh, uh, countries. Unfortunately, then the land tax went away, but it, it stayed long enough for Japan to develop into a modern economy. Do you think and it would make? Also had okay. Do you think it would make any any difference to an economy if it was a small economy and not a not a self-contained economy, for example, like the United States, but a a smaller country, an Estonia or a Latvia, could do that and and thrive in a, in, in a world of uh, uh, giants. Yeah. Well, in fact, Hong Kong did it. They did it through land leases because the original colony was too small, so they leased a lot of land from China on a 99-year lease. So the land in Hong Kong actually belonged to the government, but they have leaseholds, and the leasehold income enabled Hong Kong to have much lower taxes than everything else. In fact, they could have eliminated all other taxes. But nevertheless, they have a low-tax, free-trade environment in which Hong Kong has thrived. Uh, so a small economy like that can greatly benefit. And if we switch to Germany, in effect, uh, I don't know the details of German land policy, but it seems to me they don't allow speculation on the land. Housing doesn't boom. Uh, most people rent. And the German economy is a booming economy. So in effect, it's got an implicit uh, suppression yes. of yes. speculative values. Any comments on that? Yeah, their, their taxes and policies uh, have uh, prevented the boom and bust uh, Although, of course, their economy would be much better if they had uh, explicit land value tax and eliminated the value-added tax and the other taxes they have, because the Germans do have uh, some unemployment, especially in the eastern part that used to be, you know, the East Germany. Uh, <clears throat> now, uh, Germany in the 1920s uh, appeared to boom uh, after the inflation ended, uh, and yet they fell into a deep uh, depression because of the land value speculation that occurred then. Doesn't seem to be happening now. Uh, so yeah, there are, other, there are other things government can do to reduce the uh, land value boom, but um, that doesn't mean that they can't do a lot better 
if if they eliminated their value added tax and replaced it with a land value tax. Okay. Now I'm going to cut right back to the United States on on uh, an area that uh, you're well versed on. Uh, taking your macro view of, of America, you know, we have a situation in the last 30 years where wages have essentially been stagnant and productivity has doubled. How has it been possible to do that? And could that have happened with a land value tax? Would not have happened with it. Well, <clears throat> what happens is land rent ex absorbs much of the gains from economic expansion. And what's happened in the last 30 years is as total output has gone up, this is, the, this is explained by the classical model of land and rent that uh, Ricardo and Henry George uh, used. As, the, uh, as you get greater productivity and more capital goods and greater wealth, uh, <clears throat> much of that is absorbed by higher land rent. And so that's, I think that's basically what happened. Much of the gains went to land rent, much of it hidden in the form of economic of uh, corporate profits uh, and and uh, mortgage interest, so you don't see it as rent. And in fact, the national income accounts, where the only place rent actually uh, is shown in the national income accounts, is rental income of persons. So that that does not include uh, corporate. Shows about two percent. Yeah, it it and 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 that rental income. In, uh, subtracts depreciation and other costs, whether they're real or imagined. Mm -hmm. So um, the, uh, I think what, what has happened is much of the gains have, have gone to land rent. Prior to that, you see in the 1920s, you had a lot of expansion into the suburbs because of the automobile. And so that made more mm -hmm. land available uh, for, for residency. Since 1970, uh, Partly because, well, so what happened, one of the problems of the 70s that changed things was the high inflation that raised asset prices, but not wages. We had a golden period between 45 and 1970 where wages could keep up, and, and that was broken. Yes, wages did keep up. Then the world changed and you had a more global economy, uh, more, uh, more competition with foreign workers, so low-skilled workers have been at a disadvantage. Their wage has been stagnant. Uh, skilled labor, educated and skilled labor, their wages have gone up in comparison. Okay, but if we had a Georgia system or a land tax system, there would be, be jobs for low wage people in the economy also because the things would be distributed a little more evenly and the revenues would be much, much greater for covering social goods and you'd be able to eliminate income and capital taxes. So I would guess that we'd have a much better distribution of uh, labor between low and high skill labor. If you collect almost all of the land rent, you equalize the, so the, you eliminate one of the reasons for inequality because you equalize the benefit of land value, right? You equalize the income from land. And so that goes a long way to equalizing the distribution of income without hurting production. I think you've given us a, a great lesson in both the macro and micro uh, view and understanding of uh, a Georgia's worldview. And uh, I thank you for that. I think it's the clearest exposition in the shortest period of time that I've ever heard. And uh, let's continue this another time. Sure.
are there any things that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you that cover cover our George's viewpoint? Well, I was thinking, uh, I've been thinking for a while on the um, political incentives that uh, prevent uh, the reform that we want. And uh, so one of, uh, so I believe that the structure of democracy that we have, which I call mass democracy, in which you have uh, millions of people voting for candidates, and that, that creates an inherent demand for campaign funds, which is provided by the special interests, right? that prevents uh, significant reforms. Uh, so I believe that um, what is needed uh, is a change in the political structure to replace mass democracy with small group democracy, where people only vote for their local neighborhood council and nothing else. Then you can personally know the candidates, and these neighborhood councils would then elect the city council, the city council elects the county level uh, boards, the counties elect the state, and the state elects the Congress. This bottom-up, multi-level structure, I think, would uh, then uh, prevent the influence of money and special interest that has been plaguing the American economy since the beginning. Okay, Fred, thanks so much for joining us, and let's do it again. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.